to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. I am so excited because today I have one of my dear, dear friends, mentor, and actually my very first boss, probably the best boss I've ever had, Jen Mayer. She is the founding partner of Becoming Better Together, which is a transformational consulting firm that she is she's put together with some of her colleagues and trusted friends and partners and it, they're changing the world so today we're going to talk all about the things hi jen hello hello ria hello podcast listeners so exciting to have you so i told our listeners a little bit about how we know each other but tell me a little bit about your own career and what has brought you up to this point in your professional life Yeah, it's an unexpected journey that I couldn't have predicted when I graduated from college in 1995. We don't need to say say years. (laughs) With a science degree. My early part of my career was spent in philanthropy, which led me to an incredible nonprofit organization. And it's the organization that you and I both know and love so dearly, Summer Bridge, also known as Breakthrough. And that place was just an incredible place for me because it was a place where we could tell the truth, where we could have honest conversations with students about what it is that they wanted and their dreams in their lives. And then also talk about the reality of the barriers that would exist for them and how what would be necessary to remove those barriers. And that was the first time that I had seen in another nonprofit organization a level of honesty about the reality facing low-income students and students of color. And honestly, was probably a program that I would have wanted when I was a middle school student because At that point in my life, we weren't having real honest conversations between older folks and and students. So learned so much from that that experience. And that took me into Teach for America, where I worked both in development and spent most of my time working in leadership and diversity, equity, and inclusiveness spaces until I left about three years ago. And co-founded this organization, Becoming Better Together, which is about how we collectively work towards liberation for ourselves and the worlds around us. So Small mission. We're just changed in the world. No bigs. Obviously, you and I are mutual fans of each other, and we've kept tabs on each other throughout our our respective careers. But I have to tell you, when I bump into anybody who knows you, it, it's like this. You go, Oh my God, Jen, (laughs) you're like the Beyonce of the nonprofit world. So um, I think the way I feel when I run into people, I ran into somebody that I didn't think I was ever going to see again a couple months ago. And I was like, I think we both literally wept. I was like, Oh, Ivy, how I've missed you. Why did we lose touch? (laughs) I know, I know. But see, I feel like you're one of these people in my life who has just such a generous and loving spirit. And I think the people who have worked with you, for you, alongside you, have assume have supervised you, but I, I wouldn't know. I suppose all universally have this really positive perspective and opinion about the ways that you are 
in relationship with other people. So tell me a little bit about that because you are both really generous and loving and caring and gentle and warm and also very intentional about relationships. And so I guess the question is, how do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, well, I will choose like words on a, on a maybe annual basis to kind of guide an intention for a bit of time. And as I've been thinking about my words recently, they actually came through the words of a participant in one of the training sessions we did recently. And she said, Jen was both fierce and kind. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was like high praise because I think that I spent a lot of my life socialized as a, a white woman doubling down on kindness, but not coming with the ferocity that would be necessary to change the status quo of the world. And so I think a lot about, and I think I've always really thought about relationships and maybe even from like a place of self, selfishness, like how is it that I want to be known in the world with the people that I, I care about and I choose to spend time with? And then how can I try to create the conditions to know others in that same way? And I know that that's not necessarily always <laughs> aligned with our, our archetypal and kind of quickly becoming ancient forms of, of leadership as control. But I've always tried to think about like, whatever it is that we're going to do, we're going to do it much better. And it's going to have a much more lasting effect if we're doing it together and the folks who are doing it are choosing to do that. And so I think that that requires like a level of knowing oneself and knowing each other. And, you know, in our collective, we talk about this, this phrase, it's the first part of it comes from Susan Scott, who wrote for Fierce Conversations, which is definitely a resource I would recommend to everyone. But she says the conversation is the relationship. And the thing that we've added is, and the relationship is the unit of change. Wait, say that one more time because it's so powerful. Yeah, the conversation is the relationship and the relationship is the unit of change. So if we're not in conversation with each other and ourselves, honestly, then we're not in relationship. And if we're not in relationship, then nothing will change. And so really thinking about, you know, the times where, you know, white supremacy or my condition would have me try and choose like comfort or silence or avoiding conflict. What I've tried to train myself to, to think is like, so when I do that, I'm actually choosing not to be in relationship with myself because I'm denying and betraying what it is that I'm feeling, not to be in relationship with other people and choosing not to let things, to let things stay the status quo and not to change. And so when I think about it in that way, it, it gets me to this place of like, so what is it that I value most in the world? And I want everybody to be free, which means lots of things need to change. And suddenly, like my discomfort with engaging in the conversation becomes le much less important because I'm like, I am, I am definitely not going to let the rest of my life not be about change in relationships. So it refocuses, you know, me back on my values as opposed to all of those powerful tools of socialization that actually are oppressive and instead of in line with the thing that I care most about. Jen, you've said more than a mouthful. There's so much to unpack here. But one thing I want to touch on is this idea of core values. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, 
how do you articulate core values for yourself? And is this something that you revisit on a regular basis or is this something that's pretty fundamental and and a pillar into who you are as a person? Yes, both. So I think I've always been a person that's been strongly led by my values. And those values, I think, have shifted and changed over time. And so going through a regular process of revisiting those things and calling them out explicitly and then getting underneath, like, what is the meaning of the word integrity for me in this moment? Or what is the meaning of the word liberation for me in this moment helps me both understand how my understanding of those things has changed and evolved and then also helps me kind of sort through, are these still the things that are most resonant to me? Or are there other values that have come up through the experiences that I've had over the last six months or the last six years or however long that have caused those, those shifts and changes? And that's an important process for me because lots of times there's, there's this thing that happens. Like we change, but we don't recognize that we've changed constantly. And so going through that process of being like, oh, I've changed. This is different is important to like recognize, I think, for oneself. And it's also important to recognize for other people to be like, oh, that that person that I was, you know, a year ago, I've changed and here's who I am now. And so when we sometimes get into conflicts, it's because we've not recognized the ways that we've changed. We've conditioned people to work with us in a certain way. And then when we've changed and then therefore our behavior changes, it feels dissonant and uncomfortable for people who've been, you know, used to working with in a certain way. So being able to say like, I've changed and here are the things that have changed and why help bring things to, you know, something that is, can be seen and talked about as opposed to like, why is she doing this thing that seems invisible? Yeah, so much of that resonates with me because I think, you know, I think people under communicate all of the time. Mm-hmm. And I also think that, you know, as leaders, it's really hard, but necessary to take time out to really reflect on oneself and to get to know oneself. And mm-hmm. especially, I think, in a nonprofit where everything feels so overwhelming, immediate, resource constrained, Mm -hmm. that it's much easier to go on autopilot and continue just doggy paddling your way, your way forward, as opposed to stopping and thinking and reflecting. Totally. And there's some things that I would, I would just bring to that, right? Like that idea of urgency, urgency, urgency is something that is so ingrained in white supremacy culture, right? And one of the things that we, we sometimes fail to recognize is that, you know, to be in relationship with oneself and with other people takes time and anything else is going to take more time because we will inadvertently do things unconsciously that we then have to spend a whole lot of time undoing, cleaning up, repairing that then prevents us from spending that time and energy focused on the mission, vision, and the work that we're supposed to be doing together. And so, you know, one of the trainings that we do is about like noticing group patterns and dynamics and who is talking in a group and what is being said, especially through the lenses of race and gender. 
And lots of times, if you're watching a group, there are a couple of key players that are active in whatever the conversation is. And then there's a whole bunch of bystanders who are witnessing what's happening, who are probably feeling some things about what is happening, who have their own stories about what is happening, and they're not doing anything. And so, you know, one of the things that we try to do is get folks to a place of, instead of bystanding, like standing up and participating in the conversation, participating in the relationship, so that we can keep those things that we would rather keep hidden on the table, because that's what will allow us to to do the work, to stay engaged, as opposed to like doing whatever is like the, the most immediate task, often in ways that are, you know, oppressive or cause harm, but then we have to spend all of this time and energy fixing and repairing. Yeah, I, that resonates with me deeply because I, I you know, the benefits of the podcast is I get a lot of time to think about my own life and leadership. <laughs> and Absolutely. I think, you know, I, I've said this a lot though, which is if I ever become an ED again, I feel like I'd be a way better ED because I've actually had the time and space to think about what mm-hmm. I've done and what I would do differently. But one of the things was very much not spending the time to build the relationships, especially around difficult things and difficult mm-hmm. conversations because, you know, I was so busy being busy that I was like, okay, can we just like move on, get over it, let's go. And right. I realized that that in, in retrospect was probably much more oppressive than helpful. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about like, how do we navigate these difficult relationships and these difficult conversations? Because I do think coming from a place of, you know, especially in the nonprofit world, we all are coming from positive intention, right? We all want to do positive things in the world. We want to help people, but we don't always know the right things to do or the right things to say, particularly with people that we have difficult relationships with. So can you give us some some thoughts about that? Yeah. And some of this might feel familiar because we've done some of this work together. I think about like how do we create a container or a vessel for our relationship? And to the best of what it is that I've been able to find in terms of research and best practices in the field and also in my personal experiences, that vessel is is composed of three essential things. One is the, the vision of what it is that we're doing. What are we trying to do together and to what end? And lots of times people aren't clear on that. And so their interpretations of the vision lead them to take actions that if we aren't aligned on what the vision is, then the actions get misaligned and that leads to a lot of conflict. So really spending time making sure we're really clear on what the vision is and to what end we're doing it. The second thing that we've already talked about are what are our collective values? What is it that we stand for? And those are built from the, you know, the synthesis of the individuals within that organization and the values that would be necessary in order to deliver on the vision, right? And so there's lots of times where we're not clear about our values, or I was talking with a school leader actually on Tuesday, 
And they were doing an artifact review of all of the things that were representative of their culture. And they had nine different documents that had values in them. And so we added them up. It was probably like 42 different values. And so it became very clear in doing that artifact review why it's so difficult for them to make decisions that are centered in values, because almost anything could be a value in this organization. And so, you know, making sure that we're really clear on like, what are the three to five very clear values that articulate what it is that we stand for? And when we're able to do that, then it can reduce the, the dissonance that often shows up in the gap between our aspirational values and then how we actually behave, right? So if we're able to say clearly, like, we in our collective are committed to liberation, which means every time we encounter something that seeks to use the system against us or have us do something centered in dominance or oppression, we're going to hit pause and we're going to talk about it. And what that means in practice is like one of the things around white supremacy culture is like playing people off of each other. So we agree as a collective that we are not going to compete with one another, that we are instead going to communicate and collaborate. And that has been a value that has held us lots of times <laughs> when multiple people will get, you know, RFPs or different things. It, it forces us to say, hey, friends. Did everybody get this? How is it that we choose to respond together? So values and vision. The other thing that I would say underneath that is like getting clear on motivations, right? We can have the same vision and the same values. And if our motivations are different or if we're unclear on what our motivations are, that can also be a place that causes dissonance. And so one example of that that I've encountered recently is, you know, there are lots of folks who are, you know, colleagues of color of mine who really what their, their primary motivation is, is trying to create generational wealth because that's never been true in their families. It's also never been true in my family and something that I aspire to, too. And when we're making decisions with that as our primary motivation, we will often do things to to accommodate the system so that we can continue to get the goodies of the system because we're trying to accumulate wealth. And sometimes we do that disconsciously or unconsciously. And when we're able to say like, I am right now trying to accumulate as much wealth as possible for this reason, it then helps the people around me understand some of the actions that I'm taking and why and depersonalize it maybe isn't the right word, but like have less judgment about it, like just be more clear about like, oh, that is important. And that is an important part of this work. And it explains a lot of things that are happening. And I don't have to fight against you. I can understand what your motivations are and we can figure out how to work. I mean, all this sounds really great, but I'm not, but, and I think what <laughs> is hard about this is it takes a level of self-awareness and self-knowledge that mm -hmm. I think is not not easy to come by. So talk talk a little bit about how we can both make the motivations and values and vision known to others and and first and foremost known to ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going back to that, what you were saying before, like if you were going to be an executive director again, you'd be very different because you've had some time to reflect. I think 
we or I have imagined that that time to reflect is somehow, you know, like a luxury or something that is outside of my job description. And when I have moved it to a place of, oh, like I actually need to be really, really clear on these things within myself as part of my job in the world, or else I'm going to mess things up it somehow creates a little bit more space for me to not think about that as a selfish act, but to think about that as a selfless act and an act for the collective work that we're committed to. I think that there's also things that need to change in terms of how we think about the, about work and urgency, right? Like you and I have been in the education reform space for decades and the ways in which things have substan- have changed or not are heartbreakingly similar to when we started this work 25 years ago. And so for all of the urgency that all of us have used, nothing has significantly changed, which means like I, for me, like, so the way that I'm doing it needs to change because this isn't working. The other thing that I would say is like, there are structural things. Like, I think that's a mindset thing, like understanding that you know, self-reflection and self-awareness is a foundational part of our jobs and our job descriptions. I think that there are operational things that we can do as well. So we can create those, those times for reflection in our organizations where there is dedicated time to doing that. I think that, you know, what I'm starting to see in some organizations is sabbaticals in nonprofit organizations, right? Exactly. Like, wow, Can you imagine what it might have been like at seven years of going long and hard and something to have a paid sabbatical with all of your benefits? And then get this, you also get a stipend to go and do something without, it could be a vacation, it could be a class, you have, you can use it however it is that you want. And I just wonder for for so many of us, whether we would be able to endure and go longer and deeper if we had that time and space. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be an amazing thing. So if there are folks out there listening, i.e. funders, consider this. I mean, because if we really think about the fact that there is a bit of a, a leadership pipeline issue, particularly for folks of color in the nonprofit space, then we need to think about some retention strategies. Mm-hmm. And I certainly think sabbaticals would be one. Just to change tax a little bit. So, you know, we live in a world where people are people mm-hmm. and people, people misunderstand each other all the time. People get their feelings hurt. People hurt other people. So can you give us some tips and tools for how we heal relationships between each other? Because I think the thing that resonates with me a lot is that relationship is the unit of change. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we need to heal our relationships. Yeah, lots of times we need to heal our relationships. So there's a couple of things that come to mind in that. One is the relationship one has with oneself and just being really clear about that. And I think one of the ways that white supremacy works and has worked in our country is to strip us collectively of our humanity, which means to strip us of feeling anything. Because I believe that had we been able to feel things, the emotions, the impact of the brutality around us for the last 400 years, that we would have done different things. We wouldn't have abided by 
lynchings and mass incarceration and things that we know, I think, in our the seat of our soul are, are deeply wrong. And so the first thing is like to decenter this idea of like feelings don't exist at work and feelings don't have any place at work. Our feelings are actually the things that drive our actions. And so if we are divorced from our feelings, meaning like we either don't feel them or we don't feel them consciously, we do all sorts, we make all sorts of actions that are scattered and dissonant, right? And so going back into that place of the body, because the body won't betray us, like if we can just go back and say like, so what is it that I'm feeling and what is underneath that? I think that's a tool that then also gives us the ability to communicate those things to other people, right? I am feeling really anxious right now because I care about the outcome of this meeting and because I am on a performance improvement plan with the board and my job feels like it's on the line. That starts a completely different conversation than, okay, we need a plan for what it is that we're going to do with the board. So know what's going on with oneself, communicate that with other people. And then when we get to the place where in our bodies, we know that there's something, there's some funk going on, like choosing the bravery to say, okay, so what is the conversation that we need to have? So opening sometimes a group dialogue just with that, that sentence starter of, so what's the conversation this group needs to have right now? like pushes folks into a place of reflection and offers space to talk about things that oftentimes we can't talk about or we choose not to talk about. I would say that lots of times in organizations, that's like not yet a practice. It's not a habit. And so I like to give, you know, the former teacher in me who (laughs) teaching and learning is my jam, like trying to get really clear with some sentence starters can be really helpful. And again, I'm going to plug Susan Scott's work here, but she puts together this framework called mineral rights, and it gives a series of of lots of different questions, depending on the context of the, the relationship and the conflict to get people started. And some of the things that I've found really helpful are the sentence starters about, so the most important thing you and I need to talk about is insert the blank, right? And that gives me a chance to describe what is, what is going on from my perspective and open the space for the other person to describe through their perspective what is happening. And we usually don't even get to that stage. <laughs> then it's like this next stage of, so, so this is what's happening and here's what the impact is on me personally. And here's the impact on what is happening or not happening in our work as a result. So this would be the sentence starter of this is impacting me by, this is impacting our work by. And then I like this this piece about, so if nothing changes, if we don't engage in this conversation, if we don't deepen our relationship, what are the implications? The implications are, insert the blank. And then there's this lovely place where we individually and collectively take responsibility, where we, we kind of sit back and we say, and here's what I've done in the dynamic of our relationship that has led to this dynamic. 
and again, like this is self-described, but it's a place of, of self-discovery and self-disclosure. And, you know, you can pull all the Brene Brown stuff on vulnerability and authenticity and what that opens up in a relationship. And then getting to the place of saying, so here's the reality that I see it. Here's the impact on me. Here's the impact on our work. And here's what I think could happen if nothing changes. Then we go to the place of like the platform of possibility that I see my ideal outcome as a result of this conversation or of us having a different relationship is insert the blank. And I like to ask folks to describe that both from the lens of like what the personal impact will be for them, but also what is the impact that will happen within their organization and within the work that they're doing collectively together. And then we come to the table with some steps like and here are some things I think we could do in order to get to that place. That's really beautiful. Can you think of any examples in which this has really shifted a relationship in a significant way? Yeah. We get called at times in our collective to mediate conversations. And usually they're conversations along lines of difference. So usually with a person of color and a white person. And so we've used these sentence starters and these protocols many times in that context. And I can think of one instance with a white woman and an Asian American woman. And they were at the place of like, like they were just going to break up, right? They were just done with each other. They were working in an organization in which there was like no boss. And that's a whole other separate thing, but their work required that they work together. And so what was happening is that they weren't working together. It had gotten so bad that they were actually working against each other. And it wasn't even unconsciously working against each other. Like I think people were conscious that that was happening and neither of them wanted to leave the organization. So they had to do something different. And this was like their last ditch effort to try and, you know, not leave the organization and continue to do the work that they both really loved and wanted to do. And so the way that we structured that conversation is in those instances, we have interracial, you know, facilitation and mediation. And I met with the white woman and my colleague met with the Asian American woman, my colleague who also identifies as Asian American, and had like a preview conversation. And we said, we kind of previewed these these sentence starters and had folks work through what it is that they were thinking, feeling, and would want to say. And the coaching that happened in those those instances were to help bring the lenses of, of racial and gender identities into what it was that people were saying and not saying and thinking and not thinking, so that when they came to the conversation collectively, they had more consciousness about, about you know, race and gender in those conversations. So two separate conversations, then we bring them together. And the person who who either feels most harmed or has the least advantage in terms of how society gives out advantages. So in this instance, the Asian American woman is given the opportunity to choose whether she would want to speak first or speak second. And she went through the protocol and she just said the things that she had to say. And her colleague on the other side, you know, also has responsibilities in that. And so the responsibilities are to genuinely listen with curiosity about what the person is saying. And when the person is done speaking 
their truth, repeat back, here's what it is that I heard from you about what the issue is and how it's impacting you and our work. Here are the things that you believe you have done to contribute to this. And here's the ideal thing that you would like to see happen and what you're willing to do for that. And that gives us chance to like have both parties then be meeting, right? And so sometimes when we are the person who is speaking, we think that we've said something, but we haven't. And so this is a really good check to say, oh, so either I didn't say it or you didn't hear it, but this is something else in addition to what it is that you've repeated back that you've heard from me. So you really get clear on what that person's reality is. And then you thank the person and then you switch roles mm-hmm. and go through the process again. So this is a last question because you and I could talk for hours and hours and we have, but <laughs> we do need to uh, wrap it up. But does this work in an situation in which people refuse or will not take responsibility for their actions. Like you and I have had instances in the past in which we've worked with people who would not take responsibility for their part. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering, can this work if it's a one-sided conversation? (laughs) My immediate response is no. And then I thought of an instance of yes. We were working with a a funder, a, a client, and it was, it was crazy pants in lots of ways, most specifically around changing deadlines and changing priorities. And, and we couldn't get, we were getting a lot of blame from them, but not a lot of responsibility and saying, okay, so here's where we're at in the scope of our contract. We need to take a moment to reflect on where we are and doing this protocol with them actually gave them the, the space to pause and say, oh, and these are the things that I've done that have contributed to this that we're blaming you for. And so if you can't get them to, if you can't get the parties to come to the conversation and you can't actually, like if people refuse, you cannot make them. And if you try to make them, it's like an exercise of domination and control and they are going to become more entrenched in what it is that they think as opposed to less. And so if they're not going to come to the table, they're not going to come to the table and you can't force them. Yeah. The older you you can get them there and be like, can we just try this one thing? And if it doesn't work, great. We're no worse off. Yeah. The older I get, the more I realize you can't make anybody do anything that they're not going to do. So Jen, I'm going to include all of the resources you mentioned in the show notes, along with your websites. If folks want to get in touch with you, I would really recommend to anyone listening to work with Jen and her team. They're amazing people. They will help you to be better together. So if yes, you're, don't go it alone. Yeah. So if you're experiencing some organizational change, some DEI stuff, I mean, what other services do you offer, Jen? Coaching, I know. Coaching, leadership development, equity audits, capacity building. Beautiful. So folks out there, Jen Mayer and her team, thumbs up from Nonprofit Lowdown. And Jen, so good to talk to you. And actually, I'll see you very soon in LA. Awesome. Thank you, Rian. Thank you. Bye.